Hi, everyone. You're listening to Infectious Ideas, a podcast series presented by the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases, the NFID, where leading experts join us for thought-provoking conversations that lead to infectious ideas. Guests include humble heroes and future leaders working together towards a shared vision of healthier lives through effective prevention and treatment. Welcome to the NFID podcast, Infectious Ideas. This is Marla Dalton, NFID Executive Director and CEO. And with me is my co-host, NFID Medical Director, Dr. William Schaffner. Bill, it's always wonderful to have you. Good to be with you. So this year, as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of NFID, we look back at the humble heroes of public health whose work has had a profound impact. And today's guest is certainly one such hero, Dr. Walter A. Orenstein, who has played a pivotal role in shaping vaccine policy in the U.S. and throughout the world. He first began his career at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as an epidemic intelligence service officer working in India to eradicate smallpox. He then rose through the ranks to become director of the U.S. National Immunization Program, where he oversaw efforts that led to record high immunization coverage and record low incidence of vaccine-preventable diseases in children. He also played a significant role in the elimination of measles and polio in the U.S. Now at Emory University, he continues his impactful work as a nationally and internationally recognized expert on vaccine policy and overcoming vaccine hesitancy. In 2021, NFID recognized him with the John P. Utes Leadership Award in recognition of his long-standing service to NFID and his lifelong work to reduce the burden of vaccine-preventable diseases. We had the privilege and the pleasure of getting to know Walt during the many years in which he served in various NFID leadership roles, including as president. So Walt, you'll forgive the pun, but I'd like to start with a question out of left field. <laughs> I know that you're an avid baseball fan like me. So how did your love of baseball inspire your career in public health and epidemiology? Baseball gets so many statistics, earned run average, batting average, also on base average, those kinds of things. And epidemiology has many statistics. Who is getting disease? What is the incidence rate? Who has the highest incidence rate? Who has the lowest incidence rate? Very comparable to the statistics in baseball. For example, one of the big issues in baseball is earned run average. An earned run is the pitcher's fault. An unearned run is the fielder's fault. And we use that principle for measles. For example, a case that was not vaccinated but should have been is a program failure. A case that is a vaccine failure or not eligible for vaccination is a strategy failure. And we use those principles from baseball to develop that. And what we did is for older kids where the problem was a strategy failure, we went from a one dose to a two dose policy for measles and we were able to eliminate measles. For younger kids, the problem was getting access to vaccine and there we remove cost as a barrier by establishing the Vaccines for Children program. So that's an example of how we use those kinds of principal earned runs and unearned runs to make policy and use epidemiology to do it. That uh, certainly is a unique approach 
to uh, epidemiology and communicable disease control, but you hit that one out of the ballpark. <laughs> <laughs> now, Marla did mention smallpox eradication. What can you tell us about your experience working on smallpox eradication in India? What was it like actually to see patients and whole communities impacted by this devastating disease? This was a horrible disease with about a 30% case fatality rate. Also, many of the survivors left pockmarks on their face so I could go and see many adults who had survived with the problems for it. It was just a devastating disease. And what I saw is with a vaccine, we could wipe it out. We could use epidemiology, trace cases, isolate the cases, and vaccinate their contacts. And if those contacts came down with disease, vaccinate who we thought would be their contacts, and we would break the chain of transmission, so-called ring vaccination or surveillance and containment. And to see this disease gone with a vaccine really changed my whole life. I had wanted to be a pediatric nephrologist and was just taking time off at the CDC for two years as an epidemic intelligence service officer. Totally changed my career. The impact of vaccines was just phenomenal. Wow. So how did your experience with smallpox eradication later translate into your work on measles and polio, which I know is very close to your heart? And as a follow-up, you know, some notable public health leaders have indicated that polio eradication has become a way of life. Or do you see an end in sight? Okay, those are very important issues. One is both polio and measles meet the criteria for eradication. One is they have a practical intervention, vaccines, which not only protect against disease, but protect against transmission. Second, there are practical diagnostic tools to determine who is infected and who is not. Third, there is no non-human reservoir. If you can break the chains from human to human, you can get rid of the disease. And fourth, the success must be documented in substantial areas. And measles, for example, has been eliminated in the Americas and a number of other places. And polio, particularly, the wild virus polio, has been eliminated in five of the six World Health Organization regions. The only region with remaining wild poliovirus transmission is the Eastern Mediterranean region, and specifically Pakistan and Afghanistan. In terms of whether we will always be working on polio, I think that's a valid concern. We need to assure that we get cases reported, we detect them, and we need to get high immunization coverage. We have the tools to do it. We have a greater than 99% reduction in 1988, when the effort began with polio, there were an estimated 350,000 cases of paralytic polio. We are now down to fewer than 100 in a given year. And so it is doable, but we have to finish the job 
And that is to go to the places where the virus is continuing to circulate and vaccinate all of the people for whom the vaccine is recommended. Eradication is a very unforgiving goal. It's zero forever. And one infection is one infection too many. So I think we're so close. And my concern is if we give up, we will have a major resurgence because a lot of the efforts that are made are special efforts. And if they end, susceptibility would increase and we will see a potential major resurgence of these infections. You know, Walt, it's striking. We have the tools, as you've said, but I think where the concerns are, you know, love to get your thoughts on how can we overcome the hesitancy that we've seen now among some ethnic and religious populations and encourage them to get vaccinated against polio and and certainly measles for that matter. That's a very important question. We need trust. When I was director of the U.S. immunization program, my director of communications used to say, you need the right message delivered by the right messenger through the right communications channel. We need to invest in implementation science research to try and determine what is the best way of messaging the importance of vaccination, who are the best messengers, and how do we get the message out. It's important to build trust. And in communities where there is hesitancy or groups We need to reach out to leaders, such as leaders of religious groups, and get their support to try and get the messages out to people. In 2019, the World Health Organization listed vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 health challenges to global health, and we need to overcome it. We need to assure that people for whom vaccines are recommended get them and we need to put the effort in and we need to finance the research to determine what is the best way to overcome that hesitancy. (laughs) There was a former president who said famously, trust but verify. (laughs) And as part of the strategies for assuring childhood immunizations in the late 1970s, states and communities across the U.S. began requiring immunization for children before they attended daycare and school. Is that still an effective strategy for disease prevention? You know it's controversial. Do we still need those laws? I think they're extremely important. We need to recognize that with almost all vaccines, not only do they provide individual protection, but they provide community protection herd immunity. If you have a high level of immunity in the population for a person-to-person spread disease, if you have a transmitting case that comes in contact with that population, the likelihood of that person finding it susceptible is reduced, and so the chain of transmission can be broken if people are indirectly protected people who are not eligible for vaccines because they have legitimate medical contraindications, people whose immune systems may be compromised and do not make a good immune response to vaccines. And then no vaccine is 100% effective. The small percentage of people who don't make effective immune responses are indirectly protected when you have high levels of immunity in the community. And hence, those laws do more than individually protect the child. They protect the community. They're extremely important. And I think if we abandon them, coverage will decrease. 
and we will see a much greater resurgence in vaccine-preventable diseases than we see today. Well, so Walt, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and, and talk a little bit more about kind of family. And I know how important your family is to you and how determined you are to carve out specific uninterrupted time with your family, which, you know, I certainly respect. We all struggle a bit with the life-work balance. So I'm wondering if you have any tips for success that you can share. One thing that is very important is each evening, at least, at some point, stop work <laughs> and spend time <laughs> with your family. That's very, very important. When my kids were young, when I would travel for work, at times, if there were it was an interesting place, I would take a week, for example, off afterwards and bring the family over and we would do things together. But I think it is important to take time with your family, go on vacations with them and spend time in a regular way, at least end your work day at a certain point even if you end it and then go back at a later hour <laughs> and spend time to work, it is a challenge. You're right to raise it. I think we need to recognize that. I'm going to take that as doctor's orders. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Walt, let's get back to vaccines just for a moment. You have a wonderful quote that we often use and attribute to you. Vaccines don't save lives. Vaccination does. Talk to us about that a little bit. That is very important. I mean, people often understand the importance of developing the vaccine, but a vaccine dose that remains in the vial is 0% effective, no matter what the effectiveness was shown in the clinical trial. We need to find a way to assure people for whom vaccines are recommended receive them. That means if there are barriers, such as costs or financial barriers, remove them. That's one of the things that the vaccines for children did for poor children, is it removed cost as a barrier. If there are problems with access, we need to bring vaccines to the people rather than people to the vaccines to make access easier. And we also need to, if it requires a parent to take time off from work, to give them that time so that they can take their children to get them vaccinated. And implementation issues are often a harder sell because people don't understand it. But a tool that remains in the toolbox is useless. We need to get it out of the toolbox and begin using it for people for whom the vaccine benefits far outweigh any risks. Very important lesson. So I'm going to broaden the horizon just a little bit. Based on your role as a consultant to the World Health Organization's Strategic Advisory Group of Experts on Immunization, SAGE, why are vaccination programs in other faraway countries so important regarding vaccine-preventable diseases here in the U.S.? That's a very important question. The issue is we are one world. A vaccine-preventable disease that is occurring in other countries can be transmitted to us. I think a good example is COVID, where it originated in China, but then it spread all over the world. It's another reason for us to try and get rid of polio. For example, we've had a polio introduction 
into New York State recently because polio viruses were circulating elsewhere in the world. So an investment by the U.S. in helping countries around the world get rid of or markedly reduce their vaccine-preventable diseases is a win-win situation. It's great for those countries because it improves the health of their population. And it's great for our domestic health security because it lessens the chances that that pathogen, that virus, that bacteria will be transported into the U.S. And so it is very important for us to advocate to help the global problem get rid of or markedly reduce vaccine-preventable diseases in their own populations, which helps them and also indirectly protects us by lowering the risk of importation. So, Walt, I I fear that the list might be long, but I'm going to ask what most keeps you up at night these days. I think probably the most difficult issue is the issue of hesitancy. As we talked about, it is so frustrating to see these conspiracy theories, this lack of trust go on, especially with social media, be believed by people Hmm. and trying to overcome these false beliefs is not easy. And we need to invest in doing that. And we need to, as I said, invest in implementation science research, overcome that hesitancy. We've got to get those vaccine doses out of the vial into the bodies of people who they recommended for their sake, as well as our community and our country's sake and our world's sake. Well said. I couldn't have said it better. Before we sign off, I think it's particularly important here in terms of overcoming that hesitancy. What is the myth that you would most like to bust? I think the belief that vaccines go from the test tube immediately into people, the myth that we don't put a very high criterion on both a safety and effectiveness. There are comprehensive studies to determine safety and effectiveness of vaccine before it's available, often in thousands and even tens of thousands, even more people, often that are placebo controlled to see if the incidence of the disease is higher in the placebo versus the other, that can measure the effectiveness, and also whether there's differences in safety, whether the vaccine recipients have certain adverse events that are higher than seen in the placebo recipient. So there's a very comprehensive effort and then a very comprehensive evaluation before a vaccine is made available. Policy deliberations are also undertaken in the open by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices of the CDC. And again, they look very carefully at the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine because we take those vaccines ourselves and we recommend them for our family and friends. And then we have a comprehensive system that looks at safety and effectiveness over time. And if we see a problem, we potentially can modify the recommendations or even take a vaccine off the market, which we did many years ago with the original rotavirus vaccine, which was associated with a rare form of bowel blockage. And the current vaccines work very well and are safe, but that's through our system. So we have a very comprehensive system. 
on safety and effectiveness in order to get the vaccine made available, and then an ongoing monitoring system to see if we have to make policy changes or not. That perspective certainly is very, very reassuring. We've been talking today with Dr. Walter Orenstein, whose remarkable career has helped to shape vaccine policy in the U.S. and throughout the world. Walt, this conversation has been so instructive. Thanks for all your contributions over the years. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, Walter. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Infectious Ideas. You can follow, like, share, and download episodes on all streaming platforms, as well as find us at nfid.org with links to our social channels. We love hearing from listeners, so send us your questions, your comments, your concerns that may be infecting your mind. We look forward to hearing from you.